0: If your Bibles turn with me to Matthew chapter five, Matthew chapter five. Read right, from verse one to twelve this morning. Matthew chapter five, verse one. Rejoice and be exceeding glad, for great is your reward in heaven, for so persecuted they the prophets which were before you. Let's pray. Father, we, uh, we thank you once again for this blessed time we can look into your word. Father, that our hearts would be open to it. Lord, that our minds would be willing to receive it. Lord, that you would give us your wisdom and your understanding. Lord, that we would be taught directly by you this morning. Father, that you would only use me as an instrument in your hand this morning to glorify you and to be able to share what you've given me. Father, we pray this morning that as we learn, that indeed our hearts would be changed, our lives challenged, our burdens lifted, and our sights set higher than where they are today. Lord, we just pray that Jesus would be lifted up and glorified in this sermon. Lord, that everything we do and we say would give him the honour and the glory, for he indeed deserves it all. We thank you for all these wonderful things you've given us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. In recent months, I've been preaching a variety of sermons. If you haven't noticed, hopefully you have. A variety of sermons, not based on one, one portion of scripture. But a number of either topical sermons or, uh, or sermons based on a single uh, text, uh, and they've been varying from week to week. Um, some of the ones we've covered recently were the wounds of Christ, for those of you who remember that one, where we spoke about the wounds um, and their, their meaning and why Jesus still has wounds. We spoke about the blood of Christ Was another sermon that, we, um, that I shared with you. And uh, last week we spoke about, which is probably the most challenging one that I've I've given, uh, is, are you really a disciple of Christ? And we marked the distinction between those who say they believe and those who are actually disciples. And and the challenge was, are you a disciple of Christ? And I hope these sermons have all been a blessing to you and you've been challenged to grow through them. And from this week, what I'd like to do is begin changing tact, right? and begin preaching a series uh, based on a portion of scripture. And the portion I'd like to look at over the coming weeks and possibly even months is what we call the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount covers chapters 5, 6 and 7 in the Gospel of Matthew and it's the single biggest piece of teaching that Jesus gave in any one time. So what I'd like us to do is, and today is only going to be a primer, it's only going to be a preparation for the sermons that are coming. Indeed, all I wanted to do today is to, for it to be an introduction to this series so that our hearts would be prepared for it and that we would actually make a commitment to grow through it. What I want us to do is, when we lead the sermon today, to be ready to receive what the, what the uh, Sermon on the Mount has for us. My desire for our church is that we would grow as individuals and as a church. And I believe that as we go through this uh, series, the Sermon on the Mount, that it will accomplish that purpose. Now, many people have admired this passage throughout history. It's, it's seen by some as the, as the, the grandest, the, 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 the loftiest sermon ever given in all of history. Many people have admired it, many people have held it to to themselves, many people have used it as a standard for their own lives, and even people outside of Christianity have seen it as a a wonderful uh, um, inspiration. It's said that Mahatma Gandhi actually used this and, and admired this particular sermon as one of the greatest pieces of literature. But, on the other hand, Many people have struggled with it. Many Christians have struggled with it. Many theologians have struggled with what Jesus actually taught on that mountain, on that day. And they've they've wondered whether Jesus was teaching a works-based salvation. Whether Jesus was actually saying, well, if you do this, then you'll get this. And if you don't do this, you're going to go to hell. Others have struggled with the idea of it being applicable to today. Today. Some have said that it doesn't doesn't apply to us at all. It only applies to the millennium. Because that's when everything's going to be perfect, you see. Well, I don't count myself as a theologian. I don't count myself as anyone with great knowledge. But I do know one thing. That these verses apply to us today. That these verses that we're going to read through and study over the coming weeks aren't just isolated to the millennium. And you know why I know they don't apply to the millennium? Because I speak about people who are being persecuted, people who mourn, people who suffer for righteousness' sake, and the millennium was not a time for that. Now was a time for that. So I know that it applies to today. And the question will be, for us, how we take it and what we do with it. I don't believe that Jesus is teaching a works-based salvation either. Rather, I believe that Jesus is essentially teaching is that the character is more important than the outward signs. Your character is what what God really is interested in. What's deep down inside is what eventually comes out. Okay, It's the character of the person that makes all the difference. The most important thing about you is not necessarily what you do on the outside, because you can do a whole lot of things on the outside and seem to everyone else to have it all together... But when it's not right on the inside, you know. You can have it all great on the outside. You can look fantastic in front of everyone else. But you know something, God's powerful enough to see what's inside here. Even though on the outside I might I might have a wonderful veneer, and you can buy the floors now that are veneered wood, right? You know, and they and, and normally the, the the floorboards we used to have or what they used to do before, and they're probably still doing, but were like 14 mil thick solid wood. And today you can buy 14 mil thick, uh, one mil thick wood, which is a veneer, which means underneath there's something else. On top, what looks like on the surface to be wood isn't necessarily wood all the way through. So, who you are this morning is the most important question that you will have to answer. It's the one that God already knows the answer to, though, already. He knows who you are. Regardless of what you do on the outside, regardless of what works you show and what veneer you have, God knows how to drill down right to the core. And that's what the Sermon on the Mount does. It drills right down and it makes you uncomfortable. It reveals, it lays bare your soul. And it forces you to answer some very important questions. And don't get me wrong. What you do is important. What you do is important. From the point of view that it tells you what you've got on the inside. But what you do on the outside can sometimes be done for different motives. You remember the Pharisees? They were doing all their wonderful prayers and tithing and all those things, not because of what they had on the inside, but because they wanted to be seen to be of other men. So, the most important thing is about being. It's about who you are. And this sermon is going to reveal exactly who we are. And if you're happy to, to come with me on this particular trip, I'm happy to do a bit of driving, let the Lord show us the direction. But it's gonna be a difficult trip. I'll be honest with you, it's not gonna be an easy trip. It's gonna be a trip where you're gonna realize that all might not be right on the inside. But hey, knowledge is an important thing. Knowledge is a wonderful thing, but it's what you do with the knowledge is even more important. There is a small passage at the end of the Lord's Sermon which actually reinforces this idea. Turn forward to Matthew chapter 7, verse 17. And that's right towards the end of the passage that we'll be reading. So I'm giving you a bit of a sneak preview as to what the result is. Because I want you to know the end already from the beginning. I want you to understand the context before we start looking at this thing verse by verse. So that way, as you, as you read this thing, you'll understand what it means. And it says in verse 17 of Matthew chapter 7, Even so, every good tree bringeth forth good fruit. But a corrupt tree bringeth forth evil fruit. A good tree cannot bring forth evil fruit, neither can a corrupt tree bring forth good fruit. Every tree that bringeth not forth good fruit is hewn down and cast into the fire. Wherefore, by their fruits ye shall know them. So, Jesus is telling us, those fruits on the outside give an indication of what's on the inside. But it's really the most important thing is what's on the inside. What type of tree is growing? What type of seed has been planted? Whatever the tree is will be determined eventually by the fruit. Sometimes we can't see the fruit too too well. But eventually the tree will be determined by the fruit. And if the fruit of the tree are the works that a person does, then the tree that bears that fruit is the heart that the person has. Because out of the heart proceed all the things that make a person who they are. Out of the heart proceed, the Bible says, fornications and lusts and envies. And out of the heart, the Bible says, come forth what you say. When you're judged by what you say, it's only because it's already been in your heart and eventually comes out. Okay. Therefore... The fruit will show you what type of tree it is, but it is a tree that will determine the fruit. So what's the most important thing? The tree. The tree is the most important thing. Without the tree, there is no fruit. And the thing that the Bible keeps on challenging us over and over and over again, the question is, what type of tree are you? Are you a good tree or are you a bad tree? And that's a hard question to answer because I would dare say, deep down, most of you would be saying right now, I don't know exactly what tree I am because there are good things in me and there are bad things in me. So how do I know what type of tree I am? Hopefully by the end of the series you'll know what type of tree you are. And most importantly, you'll allow the husbandman, you'll allow the actual the person who does the pruning to, to take care of that tree. I'll explain a bit more as this goes on. Hopefully I'll answer that question and you'll know by the end of the sermon today how you can more or less tell what type of tree you are. The message of whether you're, you are either the core is right or the core is wrong is repeated over and over as I've said. Look at, Turn back to Matthew chapter 6. Verse 22. Jesus says, The light of the body is the eye. If therefore thine eye be single, which means not one eye, it means that you're looking only in the same direction, one particular direction, thy whole body shall be full of light. But if thine eye be evil... Thine whole body shall be full of darkness. If therefore the light that is in thee be darkness. How great is that darkness. So either your eye is is evil or it's good. Correct? And depending on what your eye is, it's going to depend on whether you're filled with light or you're full of darkness. So you're either one or the other. There's nothing in between. Go to Matthew chapter 12, verse 34. Now look at Jesus, the way he speaks to the Pharisees. He says, O generation of vipers, snakes. Jesus never minced his words. He could never be accused of being light-hearted or, or, or mincing things and, and, and being gentle with these people who were being deceivers. Okay? He says, O generation of vipers, how can you, being, being evil, speak good things? For out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaketh, a good man out of the good treasure of the heart bringeth forth good things, and an evil man out of the evil treasure bringeth forth evil things. You see? So Jesus repeats this teaching over and over and over and over again in Scripture. It's all over the place. Sometimes we miss the most basic teachings of Scripture because sometimes we only scratch the veneer. But the same messages are being taught over and over again and the challenge that's given to us over and over again is examine your heart. Examine your heart because the most important thing for you and me right now is that our hearts are actually right with God. If our hearts are not right with God, then we will stand before him one day and we will be thoroughly disappointed. Because at that point we will know exactly what's in our hearts. And we will stand before God with no excuse so the question is, what we do with the time now? Do we examine our hearts and we get them right? Or do we play around and play the game? Okay. And I have no intention of playing games. And I hope you don't either. Because this is a very serious matter. Most of you know I'm a very light-hearted person. When it comes to the Word of God, though, this is ultimately serious stuff. Because everything you and I do in this life will affect not just ourselves, but everyone around us. And the things that we do will be invested in eternity, whether good or bad. So what's the most important thing is to know who you are. And that's what the Lord would have us know. You know what made King David so special? You don't have to turn with him, but I'll just read you something. When God said to when Samuel messed up really bad, sorry, when um, when Saul messed up really bad, God sent Samuel to Saul and he, and uh, and it says in uh, 1 Samuel 13:13 13, 13, it says and Samuel said unto Saul thou hast done foolishly thou hast not kept the commandment of the Lord thy God which he commanded thee for now would the Lord have established thy kingdom upon Israel forever but now thy kingdom shall not continue so Saul had been judged he was going to be removed and he was going to be replaced by someone new. And it says the Lord hath sought him a man after his own heart. After his own heart. And the Lord hath commanded him to be captain over his people because thou hast not kept that which the Lord commanded thee. God was looking for a man with a heart like him. A heart who was chasing after God. That's what it was important to God. Did David mess up? Did King David mess up? You bet he messed up. He made some huge mistakes during his reign. Massive mistakes. Some of the things we look at and we say, how on earth could a godly man even make that decision? But yet, the Bible says that he had a heart after God. So despite the failings, God knew his heart. And because David loved God with all his heart, that's what mattered to God. Despite the failings. And that's why David prayed. He knew he had a problem with his heart. And he says in Psalms one Psalm 139, Search me, O God, and know my heart, try me and know my thoughts, and see if there be any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. He knew deep down there was corruption in there. He knew it. But his desire was to love God. And God honoured that desire. That's why Jesus tells us that a man who looks at a woman to lust after her has already committed adultery. Where? In here. Don't have to do the act. The act is just the outward sign of what's already going on inside. God is powerful enough to see exactly what's going on in your heart and in your head at every moment in time. This is precisely why when a person get saved, we say. When a person puts their faith in Jesus Christ, you know what God does for that person? He gives them a new heart, a new one. Because you know something? The old one can't be fixed. The old nature can't be remodelled. It can't be fixed up. It can't be sorted out. God has to give us a completely new nature. That's why the Bible says we have been born again born again, which means coming out the like a baby again, having a completely new life. That cannot happen unless God gives us a new nature that he plants within us. And it's your nature that will inevitably determine what type of fruit you're going to produce. God hasn't made it too complicated. The Bible says that He secured our salvation. God has secured the salvation of those who put their faith in Jesus Christ. But He has also given us a Sermon on the Mount. Which tells us what that new nature looks like. So you can determine, you and I can determine, is the nature within me matching up to the nature he planted? Or is the nature within me still an old nature that I'm chasing after? The only thing that matters is whether the tree that God has planted within us, if you're saved this morning and you know it, Beyond the shadow of a doubt, if you know you're saved, then God has planted a new nature within you. That plant, that tree. And the question is, what you do with that tree. Whether you actually water that tree, give time to that tree, or whether you give time to the old tree, the old nature, and continue to feed and chase after it. You can either feed the old nature, the flesh, which can't be fixed up, Or you can feed the new nature that the Lord has planted within you to grow and flourish so that you as a person look and speak and think more like Jesus every day. A tree does not grow overnight. You are not expected to be perfect overnight. But God has said that if you plant a tree, tree, that tree is going to last. The question is whether you feed that tree or you can feed the flesh. And there's two dangers before we go into this series. There's two dangers for you and I. Two things that that might stop us from accepting what God's word says. And the first thing is, the first thing you need to be careful of is the fear of of realising who you actually are. The fear of knowing who you actually are as a person. It's scary sometimes to see yourself as you are. Ever heard yourself on, ever heard your voice recorded on on something? Do you sound the way you think you sound? No. Oftentimes you, you, you hear a recording of yourself and you think, do I sound like that? That doesn't sound like me at all. And you get all embarrassed because you think I sound a bit strange, don't I? We don't like to look at ourselves for what we really are. We struggle with that whole idea. We like to put the veneer on even for ourselves and the Bible says the heart is deceitful above all things so we actually love to play the game to ourselves first of all because you know something if I don't boost up my own ego first how can I go around walking you know, and, tell, and showing people how, uh, how wonderful I actually am. So the first person I try to convince that everything is alright is me. And when when I get to God's word and God says, you're this and you're that and you're something else. And the the word of God is like a mirror and and it shows me exactly what I am. I go, I can't see that. I can't look at that. So I turn the other way and I continue to play the charade. Because playing the charade is easier. The first danger as we read God's word, and as we're going into this series, is not wanting to know who you are. Because it's scary stuff. It can be very scary. When God reveals to you your inner heart and you see what's deep down, it might not be pretty. In reality, the whole world really lives a lie, don't they? Everyone in the world lives a complete lie. They're playing a game, a masquerade. There are things down that they're, that they're all hiding. Everyone's hiding something. Everyone's got skeletons in, in their closets and everyone's hiding things. I don't want anyone else to know because I'll tell you something. If I took any of you, including myself, and we stood you up here, and you told everyone in this congregation everything you'd ever done and every thought you'd ever had, If word you'd ever said in private to each other and to yourself. Would you be embarrassed? I would. Very embarrassing. I dare say that most of us wouldn't show our face in church anymore. The challenge to us today and in the coming weeks is simply this. Are you willing to accept what God says about you? Are you willing to accept it? Because that's going to make all the difference. If you're not willing, then don't worry about it. If you, if, and I'll lay it, just challenge out to you: If you're here today and you know that I'm going to be preaching the Sermon on the Mount, it's going to be revealing who you are, and you don't want to know, better not to be here. And You know why? Because the more you know, the Bible says, the more you will be judged on. Better not to know. But if you choose to know, if you choose to accept what God is about to say about you, you, then hang around. Are you willing to accept what God says about you? Will you agree with God about your real condition or will you continue to live, maybe, as a Pharisee? Someone who on the outside has everything together, has everything right. But then on the inside you know there are some serious problems. But you can't let anyone else know because if you let anyone else know then they might think less of you and, and so you're stuck in a continual cycle of veneer of, of lies and deceptions. What will you do with the truth? Will you take it into your heart as much as it may hurt your pride and your ego? Because this is what repentance is all about, isn't it? The first thing that Jesus, the very first word that Jesus said when he started preaching, repent. You know why? Because when you repent, you're basically saying, God, I agree with your assessment of me. You can't repent unless you, you lower yourself and are willing to accept what God has to say about you. A person must repent before they accept Jesus as their saviour. They have to. Because you have to first accept what God has to say about you before you will put your trust in the saviour. My prayer for you is that in the coming weeks, you will choose to believe what God says about you and me. And reject what the world says about you and me. You will see yourself through God's eyes and do what he says you need to do to have your condition fixed. And the second fear, the second thing that might, or the danger, as we go into this this thing, is trying to maintain good works, thinking that you're justified by them. Trying to maintain good works, thinking that you're justified by them. You see, the Pharisees were in this particular trap. They did a lot of good works. And when Jesus told his disciples and the people around them, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees, you will no wise enter the kingdom of God. They looked at him and said, how is that possible? Because the Pharisees were the ones who devoted themselves to God. They were in continual um, uh, ministry. They were, they were the guys at the top. They were doing all the teaching. They were reading all the time. They were, they were going to church all the time. They were giving money. They were tithing so carefully. They were praying in public places. They were seen to be holy men. But Jesus basically said, those guys aren't really what they say they are. There's nothing real in them. It's the, it's the veneer of good works that they have that they're actually relying on to justify them before God. You see, what they do is they count. If I say to you this morning, if I say, what makes you think you're, a, you're saved this morning? Or what makes you think you're a Christian? The first thing that will come to mind is say, oh, well, I pray, I read the Bible, I come to church, I give tithes, I do all these different types of things. Okay, That's the first thing that might come to mind because the pride and the ego first want to justify But if you strip all those things away, what's deep down? What's causing those things? Why do you come to church? I mean, I've asked this question probably a thousand times. Why do we come to church? Is it because of what everyone else is gonna say? Is it because you want to be seen to be a good Christian in the eyes of the world? I go to church every week. Oh, that's wonderful. I read the Bible. Oh, that's very good. I pray three times a day. It's not about that. Because if you strip away, imagine yourself that there was no one else watching what you do in your life. If we took away everyone else looking at what you do, would you continue to do it? Or would you stop? If no one was watching what you were doing, no one, let's say you walked into this church and you were an invisible man or woman, and no one could see what you were doing, would you be here this morning? If you were totally invisible, what would you do with your life? That probably tells you a lot about what type of person you are. It might also tell you how much you're doing it for the Lord and how much you're doing it for, for the sake of men or your own ego. Turn to Matthew chapter 23, verse 23, please. Matthew chapter 23, Matthew 23 verse 23. It says there, Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For ye pay tithe of mint and anise and cumin, and have omitted the weightier matters of the law, judgment, mercy and faith. These ought ye to have done and not to leave the other undone. Now, just let me just, just, let me just re- interrupt there for a second. Paying tithe of mint, anise, and cumin are things you can do on the outside. Do you understand? They are things that people see that can be measured on the outside. But the things such as law, judgment, mercy, and faith are things only God can see on the inside. This is where the dichotomy was. This is where the disparity was between these guys and in, within them. Look at verse 24. Ye blind guides, you strain at a gnat and swallow a camel. Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for ye may clean the outside of the cup and of the platter, but within they are full of extortion and excess. Thou blind Pharisee cleans first that which is within the cup and platter, that the outside of them may be clean also. Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, For ye are like unto white and sepulchres, that's tombs, where they bury people, which indeed appear beautiful outward, but are within, full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. Even so ye also outwardly appear righteous unto men, but within ye are full of hypocrisy and iniquity. Is that clear enough? These These men were the religious leaders, the pastors, the teachers, the priests... The people who were seen by everyone else, by the common man, as the most holy people around. And Jesus says they were a bunch of hypocrites. Because all they worried about was the outside, but inside they were all corrupt. What matters to God is what's inside you. More than what comes out on the outside. More. Because God knows that if the the inside is clean, eventually it does come out. In the end, it's not about all the carefully orchestrated works that we keep and we do, and the things that we say in public. And the, it's not any about any of that. It's rather where all these works come from. And the works, believe it or not, can come from a corrupted heart, like the Pharisees, or they can corrupt come from a genuine heart. Let's enough of a background there for you, and we're, we're not going to do much more, but. Uh, I want to give you a bit bit of background as to this particular um, passage. As I said, it's the longest single piece of teaching that Jesus does in all the Gospels. If you have a red-letter Bible, where Jesus' words are all in red, there's three whole chapters of red writing, which is strange when you look at it. And this sermon occurs toward the beginning of Jesus' ministry. Jesus had been baptised by John... And he'd been tempted by Satan in the wilderness. And after all those temptations, he began. The Bible says to preach, to teach, to gather his disciples to him. And if you look back at the passage just before chapter five, look. Go to Matthew chapter four, verse twenty-three, and we'll look at what Matthew says in preparation of this particular time. What God, what God actually says about the Lord um, as he was about to give a sermon. This is our context. Matthew 4.23, it says, And Jesus went about all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, and preaching the gospel of the kingdom, and healing all manner of sickness and all manner of disease among the people. And his fame went throughout all Syria. And they brought unto him all sick people that were taken with diverse diseases and torments, and those which were possessed with devils, and those that were lunatic, and those that had the palsy, and he healed them. And there followed him great multitudes of people from Galilee, and from Decapolis, and from Jerusalem, and from Judea, and from beyond Jordan. Jesus had thousands of people following him. He had dozens and dozens, not just the twelve disciples. He had possibly hundreds of disciples following him. And the Bible says that he gathered up his uh, his uh, his disciples and he started to teach about the kingdom. And because he started healing people, he started performing miracles. The Bible says that more and more people flocked to him. Now why more and more people were flocking to him it wasn't necessarily to hear the message, it was to get there. Their cousins and sons and aunties or whatever it is, those who are sick. There's a guy who's healing all you know all types of diseases. Let's bring Auntie Mavis down. Sorry, no, Mavis, not a um, it's not a, I'm not referring to you. Let's bring Uncle whatever it is. Someone, I don't want to say because I'm going to say someone's name right here. Let's bring them down and get healed. Or we hear he's is feeding thousands of people. So let's go down and get a free feed a lot of them are following him because of the miracles that he was performing, not because of the message that he was giving. Because when he gives this message, this is pretty hard stuff. It wasn't the type of thing that... And, and this is the, the, the difference between what we see in the New Testament and what, what's delivered today from pulpits. And, and today we have such a desperation to get people to say that prayer. You know that prayer? The sinner's prayer. Because if they just say those words it's all going to be fixed it's all going to be it's all going to be sorted out and then 90% of people who say that prayer never never end up going to church they disappear off the face of the earth never any fruit never